Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to read a passage of scripture to you to get us started tonight. And then we're going to go over to Matthew chapter 27 after that. So if you want to earmark Matthew chapter 27, we're going to visit that here in just a short moment. But I want to use Colossians chapter 1 as a segue into what I feel like God has placed upon my heart to share with you guys tonight. And no, I'm not standing on the stage. I know that's a little bit different. But I wanted to be down here eye level with you tonight because I want to shoot you as straight as I possibly can the truth of God's word and the message that he's placed upon my heart to share with you tonight. So for my believers in the room that already have a relationship with Jesus, I'm not asking you to sacrifice this week in the form of having a message that isn't specifically directed towards you, I'm asking you to join with me tonight in prayer across the room for the message that's going to be shared in these next few moments. A couple of weeks ago, as I was in here praying before a Wednesday night service, I really felt like God placed a specific thing upon my heart, and it was such a strong impression that that night I almost changed my message from what I had originally planned to share. But I didn't have a full piece about it, so I stuck with what I had. Afterwards, God made it known to me, this is the way we're going to end this series tonight. Jesus owns me. We've been discussing what that means. We've been discussing what that life looks like over the past four weeks together. But what does it really, really mean to know for certainty that you are owned by Jesus Christ, that your life belongs to him. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, as Paul's writing to these believers, he says this, He, he being Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you need a title, if you need a heading for which to put this message under tonight, it'd simply be this, transfer of ownership. Let's look at a transfer of ownership tonight. That, by definition, transferring of ownership is the means by which the ownership of something is transferred from one hand to another. Matthew chapter 27. That's where we're going for these next few moments. So make your way there. We're going to spend the rest of our time there tonight. And I'm going to read quite a bit of scripture here in these next few moments. But I need you to stay with me in that. There's a reason why we do the things that we do around here. There's a reason why we gather for worship. There's a reason why we provide small group, community opportunities. There's a reason why we open up the Word of God and study with each other. There's a reason why we provide this opportunity for you. And I want everybody in the room tonight to have a crystal clear understanding of what the essential business is of what we do in this place each and every week. We love coming in here to worship, but who are we worshiping? We love coming in here and studying the Word of God, but who are we studying about? We love challenging you to live for His glory, 
but we want to see you come to know his glory in your life, first and foremost. Everything that we do in the midst of this place is to exalt, magnify, and elevate the name of Jesus above anything and everything else. And the most important thing that any of us can dive into, I shared this with you a couple of weeks ago, the greatest need that every single one of us in this room has is the need for salvation. It's to realize that we are sinners that have fallen short of God's glory. And understanding what Jesus did when he came to this earth and allowed himself to be crucified on the cross so that we could have a restored relationship with the one true God of the universe. So tonight, I want to sit here, eye level with you guys, and maybe for some of you, the first time ever, help you see and understand in a clear and simple way what the true message of the gospel is and what it means to have a true relationship with Jesus Christ and what's at stake if we don't have that. So I need you to lean in and listen. I need you to put away all disruptions and distractions because I promise you, even in these moments while I'm speaking, the enemy is doing whatever he can to pull your mind off of what's about to be said. Matthew chapter 27. We're going to read, and then we're going to talk for a second. Matthew 27, starting in verse 1, says, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Skip down to verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. She's referring to Jesus. Verse 20, Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ. They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Verse 27, And the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, 
And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him. And they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots, and they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man's calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and seal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers, Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. 
His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Jesus is crucified gives up his life. They bury him in a tomb. Three days he resurrects, takes his life back into his own hands. What is the point? What's the point of all this? What is the point of Jesus doing what he did? Why did it have to happen the way that it did? There's a reason behind every single bit of it. What we just read in Matthew chapter 27 and half of chapter 28, I need you to understand is not some fairy tale. It's not some made-up story. It's not something that somebody got together with a group of other people and decided they'd make kind of a Disney storybook kind of a tale to tell about this man named Jesus who was actually fictional and never walked this earth and did all these amazing things and then somehow miraculously after he was killed took his life back up. Everything that we just read is a 100% true account of actual events that took place on this earth. And it's not just the Bible which can stand alone for itself in truth as verifying it. There are multiple historians and scholars throughout the centuries who don't even necessarily believe that this is the inerrant word of God that will testify to have seen these events take place. It really happened. It really took place. But the question is why? Here's why. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve committed an original sin against God. And thus, through their sin, sin entered into the entirety of mankind, including us sitting here today. Every one of us born into our flesh was born into sin. That sin separated us from a holy, righteous, and just God. The relationship that God intended for Adam and Eve to enjoy in perfection with him, the moment sin entered into this world was fractured and broken beyond repair. And thus, because of that, every single one of us are born into that same curse. The Bible tells us that all have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. And that the wages of our sin is death and eternal separation from God. So the entire Old Testament that you have in the Bible in front of you is a foreshadowing of the work that Jesus is on his way to do. The moment that happened, God already had a plan in place to restore the relationship that we in our sinful nature broke. And so all through the Old Testament of Scripture, you see God's plan of salvation falling into place piece by piece by the things that he put in place to reveal to us our need for a Savior, to help us see that we need Jesus, to help us realize our own sinful nature 
and that we are, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, in rebellion against God in our sinful flesh. But God in His love and in His grace and in His mercy is not going to allow us to remain in that state without doing something to give us the opportunity to be brought out of it. Thus, everything that begins to fall into place is God's plan of salvation to restore our relationship with Him. And as Jesus comes onto the scene, the only way that was ever going to happen is for Jesus to take flesh, just like one of us, to come to this earth to live a perfect, sinless life so that He Himself could die a perfect, sacrificial death so that by His perfect, spotless blood, our spots of sin could be washed away in His name. So when Jesus went to the cross, he did so because each and every one of us was in need of salvation. And the only way that is made available is by his sacrifice, is by his death. There is no amount of good morality that you can attain to that will get you into the gates of heaven one day. I don't care how many church services you attend. I don't care how many Bible verses you have memorized. I don't care how many prayers that you attempt to pray throughout the course of your life. I don't care how many dollars you donate to some goodwill or some charity. None of those things are sufficient to get you into the kingdom of heaven. If you stand before God one day and you give Him a laundry list of things that you've done that were good and moral here on this earth, but you have never bowed your knee and confessed Jesus Christ as Lord of your life, His response to you will be, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Jesus came so that our relationship could be restored and we could live with Him in eternity in heaven. But it's not just the reality of heaven that you need to see. It's the extreme reality of hell that you need to see as well. And I love you guys enough to sit here tonight, eye level with you, and tell you things that you won't get everywhere inside of a church building, unfortunately. To tell you that, yes, every one of us are sinners, including myself. To tell you that, yes, because of your sin, God is just in His punishment to send you to an eternity in hell in separation from Him. But to give you the good news that because of His grace and His love and His mercy, He sent Jesus to die on the cross. So that the only excuse you will have to spend an eternity in hell is your uttermost rejection of Him here. Hell is not a place that God intends for you to spend an eternity in. If He did, He would have left us broken in our sin and in our failures. But He didn't. He made a way through His Son, Jesus. As Jesus allowed these people to beat him, to whip him, to rip his beard out, to spit upon his face, 
to stand there and mock him as God of the universe, having full power and authority to, with one swipe of his hand, wipe them off the face of the earth, knowing that he couldn't do so because if he did, if he did, we would not have the opportunity that we have today to enter into a relationship with him again. So because of his great love for each and every person sitting in this room tonight, he allowed himself to be crucified on a cross. And out of his great love and mercy for you in the present day, he's allowed you to be here tonight to hear his good news. The only way any of us gains entrance into the kingdom of heaven is by confessing Jesus as Lord of our lives, being convicted of our sins, repenting and turning away from those sins, and surrendering our lives wholly to Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why we do what we do here in this place. Everything else aside, the reason why we gather, the reason why we preach, the reason why we challenge you guys as believers to go out into the lost world around you is because people need to hear the good news of Jesus. And there are people here in this room tonight that if you were honest and real about the state of your life and where you are currently, if you were to take your last breath having left this place tonight, your eternity would not be spent in heaven but in hell. But I'm telling you, that can change tonight before you leave this place. You've heard it from a scriptural point of view. Now I want you to hear some personal testimonies. And while they're coming up, guys, put it on the screen for me, the graphic that I have, just so you can have a visual, because how many of you are visual learners, right? Most of us are. Kind of a cheesy graphic, but man, it is so good in the simplicity of its message. We as mankind have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and sin's penalty is death and separation from him. That put a gap between us and a holy and righteous God. That gap is all eternity that we would spend separated from him. But because Christ paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, if we will believe in our hearts, God raised him from the dead, and confess that he is Lord, we shall be saved. Salvation is not by works. I told you there's nothing that you can do. There's no merit. There's no morality that you can gain on this earth that will gain you entrance into heaven. It's by the blood of Jesus and Jesus alone. And when you accept that, you now enter in and have a restored relationship with God Almighty. But it has to come by receiving Christ. And from that moment onward, you never have to worry ever again about where the eternity of your life will be spent. All through Jesus. I've got some special people here tonight that I've asked to be bold and courage in their faith to share with you guys the very thing and how real it is in their lives that you've just heard from Scripture. So, Adam, go ahead, brother. Uh, let me just throw out a little disclaimer. I hate speaking in front of people. There's a reason why I'm a German in the band, because I don't like to speak. But uh, Trey gave me the opportunity tonight to speak and share what God's done in my life. And uh, just hearing the gospel message presented again after I've probably heard it for 20 years now, um, it just, it always blows me away every single time just to see the redemptive work that God has done to redeem me and redeem the world for, from sin. Um, but moving on to my story, so growing up, I've always been the typical church kid. Um, grew up right here in Florence, the Bible Belt capital. Uh, my dad's a music director at the church um, I grew up at. 
like the first 10 years of my life, I probably could count on one hand the times I wasn't in a church service. I, de- I never missed a Sunday, never missed a Wednesday. Um, knew everything about church. Um, I was like any other kid, you know, I would go and kind of be like, this is cool. I meet with my friends, but I don't really know what's going on during the service. I would just like play on a coloring book or something like that. But uh, fast forward, you know, I'm 11 years old and something goes off my brain and I'm just like, I'm completely and utterly scared to death to die. And even more so to make it more intensified, I was more afraid to die because I knew I could go to hell. I'd heard the preacher talk about hell the reality of hell, I'd seen it for myself in God's word, just uh, what the reality of hell looked like and the fact that I could go there if I died and I would, you know, be lying in my bed at night and I'd be afraid, just like this could be my final night and I could wake up in the morning or the very next moment, the very next breath and it, as an eternity spent in hell. And uh, eventually that led to me, you know, braving up the courage to go to the front of my church at the end of a service one Sunday and I went up to the preacher and told him what was going on, and he led me through a sinner's prayer. Um, I admitted I was a sinner. I knew that I was a sinner. I had felt, even as a young boy, like the conviction of sin, just knowing that I did things that were wrong, and I felt guilt, and I knew that something had to purge those sins, and it was Christ. And um, I believed in God. I believe he died. Uh, I believe he rose again, and I confessed my sins that day. And I'd love to sit here and tell you, like, ever since that day that I've just progressively moved towards Christ um, for the last 20 or so, or 15 or so years, but um, that's just truly not the case. I would say maybe a year, maybe not even a year after I had walked up to the front of that church that day, I really just um, probably topped out at spiritual maturity just a year's time's worth after. Um, Moving on to junior high and high school, I pretty much kept the same spiritual maturity level, faith level that I had as a 12-year-old boy. Um, Didn't necessarily do just like terrible things, at least by the world standards. I just kind of coasted through life. Um, To put it into a picture, I would say that, you know, I was driving a car and Jesus was holding on to the wheel and I said, hey, Jesus, uh, how about you let me take the wheel? I'll just let you go in the back seat. I want to control my life. I want to do my own thing. And so throughout junior high, high school, I was motivated by worldly passions um, you know, status, sports, trying to make good grades, trying to get a scholarship, just living in the moment, doing my own thing. And, you know, I ain't going to lie, I had a pretty good time for a while. Um, I thought things were going good, and, you know, I always thought of myself as a good person or what the, the world calls a good person. And so um, I was like, you know, my, my family were good people. You know, people that I know, they're, they're pretty good people, and everything in the end works out for them. So I'm just going to kind of roll like that too. And so uh, fast forward to my senior year of high school, everything's great, having a good time, doing my own thing, you know, allowing the world to revolve around me. And so about midway through my senior year, had some issues and some stuff go on with some friends and some different situations and circumstances. And um, I just got to a place of real brokenness that I never experienced before. It was uh, a really, really dark time in my life, um, just to put it in short. Um, I felt super lonely. I isolated myself from a lot of people, removed myself from friendships and situations that I just felt like I needed to. And I got down to a really, really dark and a really, really broken place. And um, I got to a point where pretty much God just smacked me in the head and he said, look, dude, you got two roads you can go down. You can either go down the road 
that I've chose for you, that I've paid for you, the path of righteousness, the path of obedience to follow me, or you can continue on the path that you're on now. But let me just tell you something. You know, this brokenness, this emptiness you're feeling right now, that's a foreshadowing of what's going to be in the life to come for the rest of your life if you continue on this path of trying to control your own life. And so, you know, I dabble with trying to continuously, you know, control my own life for a short period of time, but eventually I couldn't take it anymore. You know, the Lord struck me, he, he broke me, and I just, I cried out to God and said, I can't take this anymore. I want to fully surrender every single aspect of my life to you. I just can't go on living like this. And so, you know, I cried out to God. I asked for his forgiveness. Uh, I said, Lord, I want to give it all to you. And um, there wasn't any kind of overnight change, but I knew something was different this time. And then over the course of the next few weeks and months, um, God aligned different situations and circumstances um, through spiritual growth as he was working inside of my heart. Um, He brought me to Underwood, and I'm still here today just as a testament of how faithful Underwood is in, in uh, bringing up people. But I started going to Underwood, started getting plugged in, started building godly relationships, which is a game changer, by the way. Um, started getting to know people that would push me and progress me toward the things of God, not the things of the world. And uh, moving on a little bit farther ahead, right before I started college, we did this thing every year called Discipleship Now. And um, it's like a three-day event. On the last day, we had an altar call. And uh, the preacher said, come on up. Um, and I'm pretty sure everybody went up that day. I fell to my knees, cried out to God, and I said, I want to surrender every single aspect of my life to you, Lord. I can't go on living like this any longer. Um, I just gave every single thing to him. I said, my relationships, my family, my decisions, my ambitions, my goals. And that was when the real life change happened for me. And um, as a result, that's uh, going on four or five years now since that day's happened. I mean, I've seen things I never thought I'd see. I've seen family members that were lost, that were bound in chains of addiction, you know, easily bound for an eternity in hell. And and I've seen God step in. I've been able to be used uh, by God to to share my testimony, my story with other people, and they've been able to relate to it. I've seen uh, an older brother of mine who I never thought would fall in love with the things of God you know, create and start his own ministry. I've seen God move in ways like I never would experience. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that, like, fully surrendering to God is like, it's obviously a no-brainer now looking at it, but it's it's definitely something that you're not just going to be like, yeah, I feel like surrendering to God today. It's, it's definitely a, a big decision. And um, one way I put it is, is like, you know, Honestly, sometimes it might suck. Sometimes it might be really difficult. There might be things you have to give up that you really don't want to. It might be friendships. It might be a relationship. It might be a hobby. It might be something that you don't think is bad, but you you know deep down it really is. And the fact of the matter is, is you're going to have to give those things up. But on the other side of those things, God's going to be sitting there every time. And I don't know about you, but I think God's better than everything. Thank you, Adam. Hey, Marie.
Um, like Adam, I have not, I'm not a big fan of um, speaking to big crowds, so you're my first big crowd, yay. Um, um, I'm an elementary music teacher, so I'm used to speaking to little kids all day long, so it's really fun to get to see big kids, but um, I'm going to be really candid with you guys for a moment. Um, I've been fighting with the Lord over the past couple of days since Trey asked me to share my testimony, um, because mine is more of the prodigal son that you hear in Luke chapter 15. I was given the inheritance by the Lord when I was um, 14 years old, and I gave my life to Christ at a revival. And I couldn't get down the aisle quick enough when the invitation was hit. I knew I was a sinner. I knew, like Adam, that if I died that night, I was going straight to hell. And there was, um, I needed Jesus at that moment. But I grew up in a small Baptist church. Um, I was the only one my age, and there was no discipleship. I had Sunday school teachers who loved me and, and told me the word, but there was no one to come alongside me and say, here's how you read scripture, here's, um, here's a small group, and that's why we push small groups to you guys, because you cannot make, do this life alone. You can't. I've tried it. Um, so fast forward, I started dating a guy from my church, and um, we had a very um, unhealthy relationship. I lost my virginity at 15, and when that relationship ended, instead of running to Christ, I ran to things of the world. The next guy, the next relationship, um, uh, I was the bigger girl in school, so when that heartache happened, um, like all teenage heartaches do, I started losing weight because I just was depressed, and I would watch my ex-boyfriend bring his new girlfriends into church, and it broke my heart, and I noticed that I was losing weight because I just wasn't eating, and then I noticed more attention was being given to me by the opposite sex, and I liked it, and instead of filling that void with God, I kept filling it with more and more attention from other people. So fast forward, that led, that attention led to an addiction problem that I had all through college. Um, at 18, I bought my first set of diet pills. And when that didn't work anymore, I would go to the next brand. And when that wouldn't work anymore, I would add fat burners. And then when that wouldn't work, I would just take diet pills, fat burners, and not eat. And my closest friends knew what was going on, but nobody wanted to sit me down and say, you have a problem. Um, all of this was going on while I was still trying to gain attention from the world and still be the, the godly, lukewarm Christian because I didn't want anybody from my hometown or my life to know that I had issues. So I would go to church on Sundays and I would act like the beautiful Christian and the perfect Christian, but I was struggling. I was hurting inside and had no really one to turn to. Um, I got into college, got with the wrong scenes, I've, when I've told you guys in small groups, I've, I've lived the party lifestyle, I've lived it. I've been to the bars um, in the darkest hours of the night. I have seen the guys and got the attention from the guys that I shouldn't have. I've put my body through things that no person should ever put themselves through. I felt the shame from the devil himself telling me that I was so far gone that God is never going to forgive you and you are not worthy and you are not worth it. Honey, your, your life is over. I've heard it. I've heard every bit of it. I've looked in the mirror in the darkest of my days and was disgusted with myself. But God in his grace always, always, always will leave the 99 for you. And that's what happened in my life. I, um, CrossFit kind of entered my life, and God used that gateway to heal my body physically because my mindset went from being the skinniest person in the room to I want to kick butt and be the strongest person in the room. 
And so that healed my addiction process. It didn't happen overnight. Um, I'm st I still am recovering. Um, Kevin, my husband, will tell you it's a daily, I've got to give it to the Lord. Um, that's why in 2017, I deleted all social media. So you will not be able to find me on social media, sorry. But I had to get it out. I had to cut it out of my life because that was a catalyst of me comparing myself to others. So fast forward a little bit. Um, when I started CrossFit, God put people in my life to point me back to him. And in 2013-ish, um, I rededicated my life back to Christ. I started falling in love with him, begging him for grace and for mercy, for healing physically and spiritually. And it's ironic because the first series of uh, the first night of the series was about identity, finding your identity in Christ. And remember, I told you that I was shamed. Satan wanted to shame me, but God turned it to glory. Satan told me I was unworthy. God said, no, you're worthy. Satan said, oh, you weren't really saved. You weren't a child of God. And God said, oh, no, 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 no. I adopted you into my kingdom. You're an heir. You're beautiful in my sight. You're a princess. You are co-heirs with Christ. And y'all, I promise you, please look at me when I say this. I have been the lukewarm Christian. I know what that's like. And I can stand up here on Wednesday nights and worship with all I have because I know what it's like to be so broken and have God heal me. And so maybe for some of you in the room, you're that person. And you don't want anybody to know because that would mean you would have to put the healing out there and you would have to put it out there to be healed. But I promise you it's worth it. I promise you that whatever you have, God can take it and heal it. And through this whole process, I shared with my small group, you know, for a long time Satan shamed me and told me I'd never get married. And who's going to marry somebody that's been with so many people and had so many issues? And God brought me in Underwood, and I met Kevin, who's just as broken as me, if you've ever heard his testimony. And I thank God every day for that, because it's a real person. Before I give the mic back, um, my, one of my mentors that brought me in Underwood, she once told me that I wasn't trying to fill a God-shaped hole with a square peg or a triangle peg. She said, you were trying to fill it with unfulfilling, unsatisfying water. And see, that's what we do in the world. We take the things like drinking and partying and attention and popularity and sports and all these things, grades, and we try to pour those into our God-shaped hole, but they don't fill you up. Only Jesus can provide the living water. Thank you guys so much. You're good to go. Back to your seats. And as we finish up tonight, I want you guys to realize, yeah, give them a hand. I want you guys to realize that Jesus changes lives. It takes a lot of boldness. It takes a lot of courage for them to sit up here and share with you those corners of their lives and the things that they have been through. But the reason why they committed to doing that tonight is because they want each and every one of you here in this place to experience the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God just like they have just like I have. Hey, this is Trey Mitchell, college and young adult pastor. I just wanted to say thank you for listening. It's our prayer that God uses these messages in a way that challenge and encourage you to live for his glory. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior, we would love to help you with making that decision. Just reach out to us through our webpage at underwoodbaptist.org. 
Be sure to check back in with us next week as we again encounter God through his word here at Life.